Ashley Brock reading Rogue Stallion, Chapter 3. Jessica unlocked her front door and walked into the familiar confines of the big cabin. A long hall led to the kitchen, past a spare bedroom. The floor, hard of pine, was scattered with worn throw rugs. The living and dining areas were in one room at the front. At the end of the hall, near the kitchen, was an elegant old bathroom. The plumbing drove her crazy in the winters, which were almost unsurvivable in this house, and the summers were hotter than blazes. She had no air conditioning, and the heat system was unreliable. She had to supplement it with fireplaces and scattered kerosene heaters. Probably one day she'll burn the whole place down around her ears, trying to keep warm. But except for the infrequent cold, she, reminded, she remained healthy. She dreamed of a house that was livable year-round. A soft mew meow came from the parlor, and Merryweather came shouting out to greet her. The huge tabby was marbled color. He'd been astray when she found him. A pitiful half-grown scrap of fur with fleas and stubby tail. She cleaned him up and brought him in, and they'd been inseparable ever since. But he hated men. He was a particularly big cat with sharp claws, and he had to be locked up when the infrequent repairman was called to the house house. He spat and hissed at them, and he even attacked the man who read the water meter. Now the poor fellow wouldn't come into the yard unless he knew Merriweather was safely locked in the house. Well, hello, she said smiling as he wrapped himself around her ankle. Want to hear all about the time I had? He made a soft sound. Scooped him up. She scooped him up under one arm and started up the stairs. Let me tell you, I've had better nights. Later, with Merriweather curled up beside her, his big head on her shoulder, she slept. But the old nightmare came back, res resurrected probably by the violence she'd seen in her. She woke in a cold sweat, crying out in the darkness. It was a relief to find herself safe, here in her own house. Merriweather opened his eyes and looked at her when she turned on the light. Never mind. Go back to sleep, she told Jimmy. I think I'll just read for a while. She picked up a favorite romance novel from her shelf and settled back to read it. She liked these old ones best, the ones that belonged to a different world and always delivered a happy ending. Soon, she was caught up in the novel and reality thankfully vanished for a little while. At 9 o'clock, sharp the next morning, McCollum showed up in Jessica's office. He was wearing beige jeans and a sports jacket over a short sleeve shirt this morning. No tie. He seemed to hate them. At least Jessica had yet to see him dressed in one. She was wearing a gray suit with a loose jacket. Her hair was severely confined on top of her head, and she had on just a light touch of makeup. Watching her gather a briefcase, McCollum thought absolutely that he much preferred the tired woman of the night before, with a glorious hair loose around her shoulders. We'll go in my car, he said when they reached the parking lot, putting the sunglasses over his eyes. They gave him an even more threatening demeanor. I have to go on to another appointment, so I'll take my truck. Now that it's been fixed, thanks to you. He opened the passenger door at the patrol car, stood there without saying a word. She hesitated for a minute, then let him help her into the car. Are you deliberately intimidating, or does it just come naturally? She asked when they were on the way to the hospital. I was been years ordering non-coms around. He said he's the old habits are hard to break. Plays hell at work sometimes. I keep forgetting that Hensley outranks me. That sounded like humor, but she had no sleep to speak of, and she felt out of sorts. She left her briefcase closer, glancing out the window at the landscape. Montana was beautiful. In spring, the area around Whitehorn was uncluttered, 
with rolling hills that ran forever to the horizon and that later in the year would be rich with grain crops. Occasionally, herds of cattle dotted the horizon. There were cottonwood and willow trees along the streams, but mostly for the country was wide open. It was home. She loved it. She especially loved Whitehorn. With its wide streets and multitude of trees, the town remained reminded her of Billings, which had quite quiet neighborhoods in a spread out city center with a refined right within the city limits. The railroad cut through Billings just as it did before did here in Whitehorn. It was necessary for transportation because mining was big business in southern Montana. The Whitehorn Hospital was surrounded by cottonwood trees. Its grounds were nicely landscaped and there was a statue of Lewis and Clark out front. Williams Clark's autograph and stone of Pompey's pillar near Harding, Montana still drew photographs. The Lewis and Clark expedition had come right through Whitehorn. Whitehorn. Jessica introduced herself and McCollum to the ward nurse, and they were taken to the nursery. Baby Jennifer, or Jenny as she was called, was in a crib there. She looked very pretty, with her big blue eyes and a tiny tuft of blonde hair on the top of her head. She looked up at her visitors without a change of expression, although her eyes were alert and intelligent. Jessica looked at her hungrily. She put down her briefcase, and with a questionable glance at the nurse, who nodded, she picked the baby girl up and held her close. Little angel, she whispered, smiling so sadly that the man at her side scrowled. She touched the tiny hand and felt it curl around her finger. She blinked back tears. She would never have a baby. She would never know the joy of feeling it grow in her body, watching his birth, nursing it at her breasts. She made a sound and McCall moved between her and the nurse with magnificent carelessness. I want to see any articles of clothing that were found on or with the child, he said. Cortisiously, the nurse, the bird, had produced a small bundle. Beyond fastened it. There was one blanket, a worn pink one, probably homemade, judging by the hand-sewed border with no label. There was a tiny gown, a pretty lace thing with foreign label, the sort that might be found at a fancy garage sale. There were some hand-knitted booties and a bottle. The bottle was a common plastic one, with nothing understanding about it. He sighed angrily, no clues here. Oh, yes, there's one more thing, detective, the nurse said suddenly. She produced a small brooch, a pink cameo. This was attached to the gown. Ah, uh, isn't it to put something so valuable on a baby? This looks like real gold. My calm touched it, turned it over. It was gold, all right, and very old. That was someone's heirloom. It might be the very clue that he needed to track down the baby's parents. Finished... Fished out a plastic bag and dropped the cameo into it, fastening it and sticking it in his inside jacket pocket. It was too small to search for prints, and it had been handled by too many people to be of value in that respect. Hensley had checked all these things yesterday when the baby was found. The bottle had been wiped clean of prints, although not by anyone at the Kincaid home. Apparently, the child's parents were anxious to be found. The puzzling thing was the bro that brooch. I wipe fingerprints off and then include a probably identifiable piece of heirloom jewelry. He was still frowning when he turned back to Jessica. She was just putting the child into its crib and straightening. The look on her face was all too easy to read, but she quickly concealed her thoughts with a business-like expression. We'll have to settle her with the child care provider until the court determines placement. Jessica told the nurse, I'll take care of that immediately when I get back to the office. I'll need to speak to the attending physician as well. Of course, Mrs. 
Miss Lawson, if you'll come with me. McConnell fell to step beside her, down a long hall to Dr. Henderson's office. They spoke with him about the child's condition and were satisfied that she could be released the next morning. I'll send over the necessary forms, Mr. Jessica assured him, shaking hands. Pity, isn't it? The doctor said, thrown away, baby, like you used paper plate. She wasn't exactly thrown away, Jessica reminded At least she was left for people... People... Left where people would find her. We've had babies who weren't so fortunate. McCollum personally. Has anybody called to check on the baby? He asked solemnly. Why, yes, Dr. Clayton. As a matter of fact, a woman from the Whitehorn Journal office called. She wanted to do a story, but I said she must first check with you. McCollum lifted an eyebrow. The Whitehorn Journal doesn't have a woman reporter. He frowned. I understand her to say the journal. I may have been mistaken. I doubt it, McCombs told me. It was probably the child's mother making sure the baby had been found. If she calls again, I'll get in touch with you. Thanks, McCombs said. He and Jessica walked back down the hall toward the hospital exit. He glanced down at her. How old are you? She, st- she started. I'm 25. She said, why? He, he looked ahead instead of. He looked ahead and said, Adam. At her, his hands stuck deep in his jean pockets. These modern attitudes may work for some women, but they won't work for you. Why don't you get married and have babies of your own instead of moving over someone else's? She didn't answer him. Rage boiled up inside her, quickening her steps as she made her way out the door toward his car. He held the door open for her. She didn't even bother to comment on the courtesy to over-question it. She was so angry. He had no right to make such remarks to her. Her private life was none of his business. He got in beside her, but he didn't start the engine. He turned toward her, his keen eyes cutting into her. You cried, he said shortly. She grasped her briefcase like a lifeline, staring straight ahead, ignoring him. He hit the steering wheel with his hand in an impotent anger. Shouldn't let her get to him this way. How can you be in law enforcement with a temper like that? She demanded icily. Stared her lovely. I don't hit people. You do too, she raged. You hit that man who's trying to pull a gun on you. I heard all about it. Did you hear that he kicked me in the, well, never mind, but he damn near unmanned me before I laid a finger on him. He said harshly. She looks a briefcase like she McCollum, you are crude. <laughs> crude and absolutely insensitive. Crude and sensitive. He played shortly. He glared at her. If you think that's crude, suppose I give you the slang term for it then. He had her with a cold smile and told her, graphically, what the man had done. She was breathing through her nostrils. Her eyes were like brown coals, and she was livid. Your hand is itching, isn't it? He taunted. You want to slap me, but you can't quite work up the nerve. You have no right to talk to me like this. How did you ever get into this line of work? You're bleeding heart liberal with more pity than purpose in your life. If you take down that hair, he pulls a pins from his hand and gave on those contact lenses, you might even find a man who'd marry you. Then you wouldn't have to spend your life burying, burying your own needs in a job that's like more than a substitute for any adult relationship with a man. You! The impact of the briefcase, briefcase hitting his shoulder shocked him speechless. She hit him again before he could recover. The leather briefcase was heavy, but it was the shock of the attack that let him frozen in his seat when she tumbled out of the car and slammed the door, ferociously behind her. She started off down the street, 
with her hair hanging in an unruly strands from his once neat bun and her jacket askew. She looked dignified even in her pathetic state and she didn't look back once. End of chapter three.